matter what your product is, no matter how competitive the industry is, if you're filling a need for an audience or, or a customer base that hasn't been paid attention to, you have a chance. You know, you have a chance against the big guys. And that's what happened to us. Hey, everyone. I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Lindsay McCormick, to our show today. Lindsay is the founder and CEO of Bite, a brand of sustainable oral care products. Back in 2016, Lindsay was working as a TV producer on HGTV's House Hunters. She was traveling all over the world, living out of her carry-on and relying heavily on travel-sized toiletries. While she was staying at hotels, she noticed how many of these tiny tubes of toothpaste she was using and throwing away every month. As a passion project, Lindsay was spending her nights and weekends learning more about alternative toothpaste options that were more sustainable. She invested $6,000 of her own money on this quote-unquote passion project and has now turned it into an eight-figure business without any outside funding. We'll talk to Lindsay about switching her careers from TV into the world of entrepreneurship and in an industry she had zero experience in, her experience on Shark Tank and what it felt like to decline Mark Cuban's offer, how she went from creating a product in her living room to becoming a multi-million dollar business, and many lessons she learned along the way. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me, Yasmin. I'm really excited to chat. Me too. And I'm just going to jump right into it. So when I was doing research about you, I am so fascinated about your life before you founded Bite. I know you were a surf and snowboard instructor. You had some gigs in bartending, then world traveler. And at one point you actually got a one-way ticket, I think, to Alaska. And, you know, until your money ran out, you figured out what to do. So I would love to hear more about your life in your early twenties and really what your goals and aspirations were at that time. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up right outside Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. I went to school in North Carolina and I majored in communication studies. And my goal was to always work in like documentaries, specifically nature documentaries, like my senior project was a persuasion essay and it was on like the importance of deforestation and bio rainforest deforestation and biomass. Like I've always been like really obsessed with the environment and conservation. And so I moved out to LA after graduating college with the goal to work in the industry. My first job was I literally met a girl at a bar out here. So you live in LA, so you know how it is. There's so many producers everywhere. And I met a girl at a bar and she was staffing up an animal planet show. And she was like, yeah, I'm staffing up this show on dog grooming, like for Animal Planet. And I was like, that is my dream job. What can I do to get on that show? And so I got my first job. It was an assistant. It's called a production assistant when you're on set and you're running all around and you're just helping everybody do everything, right? You're the lowest man on the totem, lowest woman on the totem pole doing it all. And it was really hard to get my foot in the door. I had just graduated from college and I had all of these like aspirations and wild dreams, but then you kind of you get in the real world and you're like, whoa, this is really hard. And there's a lot of people who want to do this and it's really competitive. And so I started being like, well, 
I've always been, I've loved the ocean and I love surfing and snowboarding. And so I was like, I'll just start teaching lessons on the side so I can pay my rent because I couldn't book shows all the time, like, you know, as a production assistant. And so I was working as a surf and snowboard instructor. So in the summers I would teach in Malibu, I'd wake up at five in the morning and drive up PCH. And we, I worked at a summer camp. And then in the winters, I would move up to Big Bear and both of those, I taught the little kids, the four to seven year olds. So it was super cute and really fun and a really great way to just like get outside and be active. You know, it was kind of my early, early to mid twenties and I loved it, you know, and I've always seen jobs as something to do. You make money and that's great. You need to pay your rent. It was always more like things that made, that were interesting to me and things that I wanted to do or like how I wanted to spend my time. And then it was when I was kind of, you know, in my mid twenties that I realized I didn't want to be a surf and snowboard instructor for the rest of my life, right? Like, what was I going to do? Open my own camp or, you know, and I was like, I didn't want to do that. People do do that. My friends do that. And I, I respect them. But like, for me, I was like, that's not the path I want to take. And TV was, I still wasn't hitting it the way that I wanted to. So I was like, you know what? I was 26 at the time and I gave everything away. And already I had very little, you know, I kept my expenses down. I was living basically because I was in the beach in the summer and in the mountains in the winter. So I was like, I'm going to sell my car. I'm going to give everything away. And I'm just going to travel until my savings run out. And so (laughs) that was like the beginning of, I got a one-way ticket to Alaska And I was like, we'll see where the cheapest flight out of Alaska is, you know, because it's really far. When I got to Alaska, I spent some time there. It was amazing. And then I ended up going to Sweden because that was the the, one of the cheapest tickets out of there. And then I just I ended up traveling for an entire year. So living out of a backpack, staying in hostels, guest houses. I mean, I was in Southeast Asia where it was three dollars a night to stay in a hostel in in Bangkok, you know, and it was like so fun and so amazing. And it was a really, really incredible, very free time. So (laughs) sounds amazing. You're such a free spirit. And I know at some point you actually landed a job with house hunters. So still Mm -hmm. kind of in the space of traveling and exploring the world. So I'd love to hear about that experience because I think that's really when somewhat the idea of the company started coming to you. Yep, exactly. So after I was done traveling, I was like, okay, I want to get back in TV and I'm going to work my way up. So I got a job as an assistant again, (laughs) but I worked really, really hard and I ended up kind of going up the ranks. And then within a year and a half of that, I was a producer on House Hunters. And so when you film for TV, the shows that I was doing, you're only in one place for a few days. So it's always try- it's always carry on only because you don't want to get your luggage lost when you're only in place for three days. So I had my shampoo thing that I could refill, my conditioner that I could refill, my face wash, but my toothpaste tubes, I was throwing them out every single time I'd come home from a shoot and I would basically be done with that and I'd have to get another one. And I was just like, wow, this is a really thick piece of plastic. And I never really thought about it before because usually when you have like a big toothpaste tube, you only throw that out like once every other month. You're not seeing it every week where you're throwing something, this little thing out. And so it was from there that I was like, wait, I want a refillable toothpaste, you know? And I was like, what, where are the options here? And so I started looking into powders and tablets and everything that was on the market was either packaged in plastic or it had a bunch of ingredients that I was like, wow, I don't even know why I'm putting that in my body. Like, why am I brushing my teeth with like sodium lauryl sulfate? Like, what is this? And so that was kind of the beginning of being like, oh, I want to make this product for me and my friends who are also TV producers. And like some of my, I'm also vegan. And I found out that most commercial toothpaste is tested on animals, which I had no idea idea. So I was like, okay, well now I have all my vegan friends, you know? And so that was kind of the beginning of bite and and how it all started. 
So this is an idea. You wanted to solve a problem for yourself and your friends and your family and the people you're working with. Did you ever envision it to be a company or was this just a passion project that you were just digging into and learning more about? This was a passion project. It was something that I was incredibly passionate about. It's something that's way out of my expertise. I'm not a dentist. I didn't go to dental school. So I had to learn everything about that as it applies to toothpaste. So I had to figure out what is toothpaste? Why do we use it? What do dentists like? What do they not like? And so I had to hit up friends that I went to high school and college with who became dentists and dental hygienists being like, let's talk through toothpaste. What's an abrasive? So it was all these like things to learn, but it was, it was really fun. And it was really interesting to me because the more that I dug into it, the more I learned about it. And I think that when you, the more you learn about something, the more interesting it gets. So kind of learning about how we got to where we are and how you really don't need to have a paste. It doesn't make any sense to have water or glycerin in toothpaste because we added it to toothpaste to just make it a more pleasurable experience. Like that was the whole reason it was added. But then when you add something like water or glycerin, you have to add all of these different agents to help kill the bacteria that that stuff wants to grow. Mm -hmm. So you end up with like a much less natural product than if you just take the water out entirely. And so it was kind of one of those things that it just kind of sprung an obsession. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I bought a machine I was making in my living room and I kind of figured I would just sell it on Etsy and Shopify and just whoever wanted to get it could buy it. And it would just be a really great side hustle. You know, it was definitely supposed to just be a side hustle. At that exactly. Point. I know you were talking about doing it in your living room. You know, you're creating the product in your living room. You're shipping it from your living room. It was all just done by you because it was your passion project. I know you spent about, I think, $6,000, right? In this project you were doing on the side. How are you creating awareness in those early days, if you were at all? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. This is something that I, I say to anybody who wants to start a business, especially now. Toothpaste is supposed to be one of the most competitive things. And it's like used in business school as being like, this is the industry not to go in because it's so competitive. But for me, I didn't know that, first of all. I was just doing this because I needed it. But because I was so attractive to a very niche, I built a product for a very niche market. They found out about me and they talked, they told their friends about me. So even though there was zero ad spend, I didn't do it. I didn't know how to do Facebook ads or Instagram, none of that. It was just posting on Instagram. But because of that, it was the beginning, this was 2018, the beginning of the zero waste movement, the beginning of the vegan, I mean, vegans have been around for forever and same with zero waste, but like them really getting that culture online and getting very passionate about it. And so they were looking for a product that was just like mine. When they found it, they read about it and kind of how I didn't take any shortcuts. Everything was really done in the most like stringent, most eco-friendly way that then they blogged about it and Instagrammed about it, told their friends about it and sent it to their friends. And so that was how it all started. So it's like, no matter what your product is, no matter how competitive the industry is, if you're filling a need for an audience or, or a customer base that hasn't been paid attention to, you have a chance, you know, you have a chance against the big guys. And that's what happened to us. Yeah. And before we hopped on this interview, I was listening to another interview you did and you said, I didn't go to business school. I didn't read up on case studies. I didn't do focus groups. I just wanted to create something that I personally wanted. But anyone else could have been intimidated that why isn't Colgate coming out with this or other larger brands? But the way you're talking about it, you see a problem, fill the gap. 
you see if other people in the world that you're in are interested in it and slowly it'll organically grow because I mean, we'll get into this in a little bit. I mean, your business has grown massively over the years. So I love hearing about the organic and slow way you built this passion project on the side. I think it was a few years in, you posted a viral video or a video with Byte, your company that went viral. So please tell me more about what size the company was before that video and what you did to get something to go viral and how it impacted you guys. Yes. So we were so small. It was me part-time still working as a TV producer and working as a TV producer is an intense job. I mean, that's like a full-time. And so it was like me just making these and like on the weekends, I would send them out to friends. I had done $6,000 in sales. So I had technically broken even because it took $6,000 to that's start. That's always a good sign, by the I way. <laughs> you should I be proud. Like, oh yeah. I was so excited. I was like, I did 6,000 in sales. Yeah. And literally it was like right before we went viral that that happened. So I was just like, hurrah. And then all of a sudden, I had this website and the whole reason I decided to sell was because I had invested in machinery. So I had to finally buy this tableting press. It cost $2,500 and I, well, the first one cost a thousand dollars. Then this one cost 2,500. And I was like, this is beyond a hobby. <laughs> like we are selling this. Like, this is, you know, and so women's health, the magazine outlet has a Facebook page and they were highlighting women owned businesses. And so they reached out to me and was like, Hey, we'd never heard of this product before. Would you like to send us some behind the scenes of you making this and talk about it? And then we'll, maybe we'll cut together a video and put it up on our site. And I was like, yeah, of course. So I did it at 6am before I left on a house hunter shoot. I had like, if you look at the video, it's so embarrassing. My hair <laughs> Was terrible. Like the makeup is terrible. I was like, this isn't going to go anywhere. Who cares? And so I sent it to them. And like three weeks later, I was sitting at home and I thought like my site had gotten hacked because my Shopify just started going crazy. And I was like, what has happened? And it was like, when you make a purchase on Shopify, it does like a change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, I think I had heard, you know, like 60, like, you know, I had not heard that very often. And then the next thing I know, it was like, cha-ching, cha-ching, ching, 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 ching. And I was like, what is happening? And so I honestly thought we had gotten hacked. And then I go on women's health Facebook page and they had put up the video and it had gone viral. And within like the first few hours of going up, it had almost a million views within wow. the first, like, few days, it had over 2 million and we did over $200,000 in sales. Oh my gosh. And that was like, before I even knew how to turn off like the, how do I say I'm out of stock? (laughs) This is so intense. Um, And so that was kind of the time where I was like, I need a manufacturer. Like we need business insurance. Like I need real stuff. And I mean, so just going back to that, this video was just you creating the product, right? A behind the scenes look of you building bite. So to your point, you know, you're bringing in $200,000 in sales for someone who's creating this out of their living room. You mentioned in in another interview, you were in utter panic. I just, I'm sweating just hearing about that because you want to fulfill the product, but genuinely, what were you doing in those early days? Because finding a co-packer is so, so hard that you trust. And especially that meets all the values of your company. So what did your life look like at the time? And how'd you meet the demand of that? Yeah. It was like sheer and utter panic. It was, people are like, Oh, were you so excited? I was like, no, like yeah. I yeah. thought I was going, like, I thought everything was just going to blow up. I was just like, everyone's going to hate me. Like, this is terrible. Like, I can't believe this happened. Like how, 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 what do I do about this? And so I was calling all these manufacturers and they're like, no, no, no. And, you know, kind of, as you mentioned, our, we have really intense standards. So it's like our tablets are packaged in glass. And so when you think about when you're like manufacturing tablets, usually what happens is they throw all 
all of these bottles into what's called a scrambler. And it's like this huge tumbling thing. And it just throws out the plastic bottles. And then the, the tablets are thrown into plastic bottles. And it's super easy. When you have glass, everything needs to be put on the conveyor belt by hand. So it's like, it's so labor intensive. Not many people do it unless you're in the cosmetic industry. And this was where tableting is totally different. And so it was really, really hard. It got to the point where I was just calling. I heard no a thousand times where I was like, I have money. <laughs> like, I will come to you and write a check for you right now. You can help me make this. And so because I had the money from the orders that had been placed. And finally we found it was another small business here in LA who was willing to work it out with us. And at the meantime, I was still trying to make it in my house, but it was not, it was not keeping yeah. up. And so we ended up, yeah, going with the small business here. I mean, it was so intense because at that point, it's like I had $200,000 in sales, money in the bank because Shopify puts it in your account. And I was like, I need to get this out to customers. And so I was emailing them and it was me emailing them. I'm a PR person. I don't have anything. So I was like, hey, it's Lindsay. Like, I'm, we were overwhelmed with orders. I'm so sorry. It's going to take time. Like, I hope you don't mind. If you want your money back, let me know. And it was really amazing because not many people ask for their money back. Like they were like, we see it. You're a small business. We get it. We believe in you. Like, let us know when it's ready. I think that's a testament to of the people who want to do something like my product. It's kind of expensive. It's really, it's good for the planet. And I think that if you're like, I am motivated to do this, you also are like, okay, I'll, you know, like, I'll give you a little bit more time to figure this out. So I was super thankful, but yeah, it was crazy. I'm sure. And I mean, I love, and we hear this actually a lot. We had Susie Batiz on our show. She created Poopery. It's now a $500 million business. And she talked on those early days. She was just very honest with the customers and was like, I cannot fulfill the orders. It might not work out, but very similar story to you. People were still wanting to wait and still support her in the business. So I think it just shows being honest with your customers and giving them the option. But it's great to hear how supportive they were of you. And, you know, I'm creating a company right now. We're in pre launch, but I just know how expensive it is to find A, the right co-packer, and especially in terms of the way you've built out your business in terms of sustainability, right? Like you said, glass is very expensive. Have you always thought about margins in your business, even from the early days? And you talked about how the product is expensive. So how do you manage between the two? Because it's something that I think about all the time. Yeah. It's the guts of your business, right? And it's like the real nitty gritty that you have to think through. And I think for us, Everything comes back to the fact that I never want to root against my own company. And if I'm taking a shortcut somewhere, if I'm doing something to save money or to do this, I'm going to root against my own company because I'm like, you're not actually doing like, I started this as an advocate. I started this to solve a problem and to make the world better. And so if I'm using plastic or something to, to save costs, then it's like, I will be like, dang, I hope I don't sell very many because I don't know what to do. You know, I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, that's not the position you want to be in. So I want to make sure that every choice that I'm making, I, I very much believe in it and that I can, I stand behind it. And so for me, it was, I have to figure out how much things are going to cost. And then I price it what it is and it's education. And it's, you know, explain to your customers why, like in the comments all the time, we get people being like, well, this should cost as much as Crest. And we're like, well, like commercial toothpaste. And you're like, well, we're made in the U S and we pay fair wages and we use glass and aluminum and high quality ingredients. And it's like, we can't cost the same as the people who aren't prioritizing that because if they were prioritizing that they wouldn't cost the same as what they cost you know I'm like they would cost a lot more i think for us is the way i see our place in the industry is to prove that people care 
prove that there's a market for it, prove that people will buy it because then the big guys, right? The big guys in the space, they are able to bring costs down. They are able to make it more accessible. And so we will still be where we are making our, our way and we'd have our customers. But the whole point, right, is to get plastic out of the equation for toothpaste across the board, not just for us. Like we can only do so much, but if we can prove out that the market is there, then like all the big guys will be like, wait, we want a part of that too. And when they get in, they have massive scale they can start making it competitive for people who can't afford ours. And so that's kind of the way that I see the way that we have to work. People think it's the big brands against the small brands, but we need each other. Like the big brands need us to show that there's markets and places that they're blind to. And we need them to make our weird products eventually accessible to more people, you know, so. It's so true. I've actually never had somebody on the podcast talk about it like that, but there's a win-win having both large players and small players in the market. I mean, you can be very innovative as you guys are and prove out new concepts that they might not necessarily do. And I love that you guys are all about education because you do need to educate the customer. You know, why are we more expensive? And even you're changing somewhat of a behavior habit, right? What are some of the things that have helped you? Because if somebody looks at your product, they're like, how is this toothpaste? There must be so much education that goes behind it. So I'd love to hear how you guys position that in the company. So something that's so amazing for products like ours is the fact that we're online. So we are not competing with a toothpaste tube on a shelf in a big box store, because at that point, you're just like, what is this product? Why is it more expensive? This doesn't make any sense. But when you're online, you have such an amazing opportunity to explain to your customer why you're making the choices, to be able to really educate. Like we make videos, we take content super seriously. Like we see a pillar of our brand is education and content because it it is about like, that's how we're able to make products that are totally unconventional and and innovative, but still accessible to people when they have to place it in their head somewhere, right? Like, oh, and so I think it's like, it's making it fun. It's making it beautiful. We wanted it to be something that you are proud of putting on your shelf, our bottle. Like it's like, it's cute and it has like a nice label and we want to make it very tasteful because there's a lot of companies that are super eco-friendly, but I think for us, like we want to make conscious consumerism. So like when you're making those choices, like an unconscious decision, right? So you want something that's eco-friendly, even if you don't really care so much about the planet, you want it because it looks beautiful or it tastes good or it's cool or different. I think for us, we're just always thinking of like, how do we make this like fun and exciting for people? And then how do we tell the story and educate? Yeah, you guys are doing a great job with that. And thinking more about how you're building the business, you guys are clearly doing way more than $200,000 in sales. And I believe still to this date, it's been self-funded, right? You guys have bootstrapped the business. So I'd love to hear how you think about fundraising and also your experience on Shark Tank. I mean, we'll talk about that and how Mark Cuban gave you his offer for being an investor in your business. But how have you always thought about fundraising? So for me, it's because we started out of a living room. It wasn't something that I thought I would ever do. You know, like I was like, this is not something. We're also a physical product and we're for sale online. And so I think when it comes to fundraising, if you have like a tech product or if you have an app or something and you have to have these expensive developers that you have to pay, you know, then you it makes total sense to raise. But if you have a physical product and you're especially not doing retail, because like retail will tie up money for a long time, right? It's like net 75 payments, you're out of money for a while. But when it comes to like selling on Shopify or Etsy or whoever you want to whoever you want to sell online, the money's in your account very soon within like within two days. Right. So I have found if you're selling a physical product and you're doing it that way, 
as soon as you make money and make sales, you can just reinvest, 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 mm-hmm. reinvest. And so that's the way that I've always seen it work for us. Now that I'm in the space a lot more, there's a lot of physical products that are raising, some aren't raising. And I think it's all depending on how you want to run your business. For me, I love being able to kind of do whatever I'm going to do without having to run things by, like between changing our ingredients or changing. I just want to be able to do that without having to to talk to investors. But I think there's, there's other really good reasons that other companies do raise. But yeah, for us, I just, there's been no need. (laughs) I love that. Absolutely. And so then what was the inspiration for you guys to try out for Shark Tank? And I'd love to hear the behind the scenes about the process because we see entrepreneurs on there, but what did it look like? And what was inspiration for you guys to get on there? It was so fun. So, you know, would you recommend it? It was, it was so fun. Yeah. So it was for us, we were looking for a partner where money is always fine, but like Sharks are amazing. They're incredibly well-connected. Every single one of them, you can't go wrong as long as it's a good deal. And for us, it was kind of like a mentor connecting. And so we were like, we have money. It would always be great to have more money, but let's find like a teammate at this point. And so it's my boyfriend and I who are running the company together. And so before we went on, you know, my background's in TV. So I was like, the lights are going to be on, the pressure's going to be on. Like we need to know where our stop is, how much we'll give away and how much. And we already went on with a very shark friendly deal. Like we would have like, that is not a deal that we would have shopped around if we were actually raising, like we would have been way more. So it's like, we already went on with a shark friendly deal. So we had very little room to negotiate. And I think all of the sharks are great, but in particular, the one who I was kind of, you know, most excited about was Robert. And it's because he had, when I prepared for Shark Tank, I had whiteboards of each shark and all of their investments and everything that they like and they don't like, like what to say, what not to say. Like we had, like, I prepared like a rocket launch basically. And he had, he has an eco-friendly towel company and he has a subscription box. And I was like, we're an eco-friendly company and we're subscription. So like, that could be a really great thing. He was the first shark out. Really? What was his reasoning? Yeah. I forgot what his reason was. I don't even, I forgot what it was. Yeah. I think because he was already in the space. Sure. Which I was like, wait, what? But I don't know. It's a towel, you know? So I was like, okay, okay. Well, that was, that was it. <laughs> and so, and like, of course you want Mark. Mark also has an eco-friendly company, Lollyware and Nobu. And so I was like, oh, well, this is great. But we just couldn't get to where we needed it to be when it comes to a negotiating way. And so we had to ultimately walk away. And Kevin also actually offered us a deal as well. Oh, did he? Yeah, we also said no to that. But it was really intense. And like he was so kind afterwards, joked about it. So I was really, the whole experience was very really positive. And I think for anybody who has a business, even if you have absolutely no interest on going on Shark Tank or or anything, just mentally preparing yourself for that, like thinking about it, like having to think about our business in a way of you are going to pitch it in front of the sharks plus America. You need to like, why are you interesting? Why do people care? Why is your good business? Like, why is this a good business? Mm -hmm. It's really good practice for your, like your elevator pitch, you know, of just knowing what you want to say. So I think when I take a step back, like all of that time prepping and all of that time, you know, getting ready for that really intense time on stage was so worth it because it's helped in so many ways of just like knowing my business inside and out where I don't think I would have taken time away from building to really like be like, let's get into like the showbiz guts of my, you know? And so it was really, 
good. It's true because you're so busy day to day, just making sure you stay afloat and the business is running that you would never take the time out to really think through your business plan. Unless you go and you're in an accelerator program where you are dedicated to that for like three months, you kind of had a shark tank mini accelerator experience, just diving deep and really making sure you're well-equipped and well-prepared. And I'm always curious, the, all the pitches seem so well um, created and everyone's so well-spoken. Do the producers walk you through that? So I've heard it's like dependent. So, but ours, like I wrote the script, wrote yeah. the script. We made the set. It's on us. But I've, I've heard that like everybody has a team when you're working with their producer and they like, they help you through and like the casting and actually for casting, like they had approached us. So it was when we first went viral back in August and I was like, no. And so I was like, I can't, like, I don't have time for this. Yeah. I was like, the, my business is hemorrhaging. <laughs> but I was like, well, let's talk for the next season. And that was way better. And they already tell you when they scout that you have no better or worse chance than getting on the show. They're very honest about that, but it's just like they, especially they're just looking for brands. And I think, cause we had gone viral, they were like, you should try out. And so I think you get your, your team and you go through the process and then you get your shoot day and you pitch the sharks and you leave it out all on the field. And I remember after it too, like it went so well. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah. And I was prepared to get like ripped. Yeah. I was like, this is going to be bad. I like remember telling Asher, I was like, I wonder if the show has been on the air so often that they've like mastered the kiss, kill, kiss. So like people don't like cry on stage. Yes. Cause I'm like, I would cry right now. I always think about that. If I went on shark tank, I mean, how do you not cry as much as you're holding yourself together? But yes. So I froze. I froze right when we were supposed to do like the beginning of the pitch. I just like, (laughs) okay. And then I started going, but I was just like, oh my God, what a way to start. That was so embarrassing, but it was, it was fine. They didn't play it up or anything. Thank God. But like, we're all nervous. It's so scary, but yeah, it was, it was really nice. But then when we were like leaving, we saw people who were not as happy. And I was like, oh, okay. So maybe it's not there. I was like, maybe that was a good thing. So it was a ride, but like, what a way to prepare. And that's what I tell everybody. I'm like, all my friends too. I'm like, doesn't matter if you don't want to do Shark Tank, put in your head that you are, because like, what a way to just get your pitch down and get everything down and just know your business in that way. Yeah, no, that's really great advice. And I'm sure even from Shark Tank, did you see any uptick in sales? Were you guys established more to support that? I mean, how was that experience? Yeah, so we were really lucky, like because we had gone viral a year prior, we had been through this before. We know what's going to happen. We need to make sure we have the stock. We have to do all these things. So for us, it was actually totally manageable. Yes, there was a huge, it was you know our biggest sales day and all of that, but it wasn't anything like, crazy because we were like, oh, thank goodness we had done it before. For sure. And gone through the ringer already. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So looking back on your journey, I'm sure there's so many things you can bring up, but what would you say were either maybe the biggest overall challenge or a specific hurdle that you guys have gone through? And maybe it is when you guys went viral when you were so small, but I would love to just hear your perspective on that. I think our biggest challenge is also our biggest opportunity. And it's the fact that we have really intense standards when it comes to the eco-friendly thing, you know, and always wanting to stay 
abreast on like the newest technologies. Like we had just come out with this toothbrush bristle that had like a really small amount of petroleum in it. And we were very honest about it. And like, this is why we were using it. It's the best option on the market. And then within like six months, someone had come up with an even more eco-friendly bristle. And we were like, okay, that's going to be our new thing. So it's constantly staying on top and like trying to find partners and manufacturers and vendors who will work with us, like knowing that we will always be pushing that bar and needing to keep things not crazily expensive and being able to do that. So I would say that like, that's like the challenge, but it also is the really the reason our business is successful, right? So it's like, it's the challenge and the opportunity for us. But I think, you know, something that is very real, like from like a personal founder level is just understanding that it's supposed to feel like you don't know what you're doing a lot of the time. Always, <laughs> right? Like it, even when the company grows. <laughs> yeah. You're just always, it's like a whole new thing to learn. You know, yeah. it's like, I just finally figured out this. And it's like, as soon as you figure out that there's like a whole another level, it's like a video game. And it's like, you get through the first level and you're like, I'm good. And then you get to the second level and you're like, man, there's like, there's rules here. I didn't even know where, you know, that's all, everything's different, but it's like, great. It's the game. And I love it. It's getting really comfortable and confident with feeling uncomfortable and not confident, you know, and being like, this is okay. It's part of, it's part of the journey. Oh, I love, I love to hear that. I mean, same over here. There's some days you're like, oh, this is amazing. I did everything. And then there's a next day where something comes up and blows up and you're like, I don't even know what questions to ask, how to deal with it. Where do I start? But it's, I can't imagine doing anything else. I sickly love it, but you really talked about it in the right ways. Some days you're confident and some other days you're just figuring things out. And I think it's just part of the process, no matter how big your company gets. So if anybody's listening and they're intimidated in starting a business, this is just the inner workings of it. And you do get better and better at dealing with it, I think. And I'd love to hear your perspective. How do you not get anxious or let it really take over your life? Because a fast growing business is going to be all encompassing. Like how do you manage your own mental health and any anxiety that can come from building the business? I kind of do a few different things. There's kind of like the physical like housekeeping. So for me, it's really de-stressing to go on a run. So I try to run in the mornings when I can meditation, trying to to do those types of routines, trying to have a, like a decompressing nighttime routine, which typically goes out the window, but I try trying to keep like those routines intact physically kind of in that space. And then I've put a lot of intention, especially the past six months as things are, people are connecting more to really build a network of other founders, like women founders in, in industries that are different than mine, where we can really get real, especially when you're growing your business. Sometimes like the first thing you do is like you reach out to other female founders who are in the exact industry as you, which is tough, right? Because you don't want to like they're not a competitor at all, but it's like, you're like, I can't, we're too close. Right. But it's like, now it's like, I've been talking to Katie from Mate the Label. She's an eco-friendly, you should talk to her. She's amazing. Oh, yeah. Like we can just get super real because we're not in anything in the same space. And we can kind of, it's just nice to have people that you can connect with in that way. So I would say, especially if you're building a business, like find other female founders, listen to podcasts like this, because it's so helpful to have that validated. And then you're like, oh, right. It's supposed to be hard. That's the game. (laughs) Like I get this, you know, and it's, it's wonderful. So yeah, that's what I typically do. 
I think that's great. I know. And I think entrepreneurship is such a mind game. If you can keep your mindset great, like you are good to go. That's just exactly what you need to keep intact. And I think it's a great point in terms of really trying to create a network of women or men, you know, whatever makes sense for you, who are going through the same types of problems and they don't have to necessarily be in the same industry, right? You can talk about realistic tactical items. Because what I realize is I meet so many amazing women entrepreneurs and some people might be a few steps ahead and they're great for certain topics to maybe chime in on, but having someone that's maybe in the same stage as you, where you can really talk about the nitty gritty and get their input has been super helpful. So I love that you also brought that up. And one thing you mentioned in another interview is you try not to be so reactive. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that because I think we're all at fault sometimes to just quickly get on our phones, be reactive, and just kind of go into what work expects of us. When you're a leader, you really need to be the one that's more proactive about the day. I love that. Yeah, it's trying to be proactive instead of reactive. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Right? It's yeah. so, it's tough. I've found that my mornings, if I can control my morning, I'm going to have a much better day. <laughs> and so, and that has meant I've never been a morning person. I now wake up at six in the morning, you know? So I have that time to be by myself. The team is not here. I don't have to check emails. I can meditate. I can read. I can go on a run. I can do these things that make me feel in control because then I know when the day starts and the first fire happens and the first, I'm just coming from a place of, of at least like the idea of control, a place of calm, as opposed yeah. to when, when things really do get crazy. And sometimes they do, even for me, it's like, I try to keep things under control, but sometimes you do wake up. And the first thing you do is you check your phone and immediately there's an email that, that you have to deal with. And so I do let that happen every once in a while, but I try to be very cognizant of being like, if I can to just really be focused on the morning and just keep that because it's going to help me throughout the rest of the day. Yeah, so. no, I agree. I'm so glad you talked about that because I think it is really game changing if you can maneuver that on those days where it's not so hectic for you in business. Another question I'd love to ask you is what are you most proud of that a lot of people may not know about you? I mean, right now I feel like everything is so revolving around the company, which is great, but I think just the <laughs> endurance and like stamina, it's like, I've always been very hardworking. And this is why it's so important to have a company that you're very passionate about the mission. I'm like very proud of my stamina yeah. of just being able to constantly stay engaged and really be interested. And even when things start to get really hard, knowing when you have to be forgiving of being like, okay, I'm going to go for a run. Like, I'm just going to go for a run today. And it's going to be, and then I'm going to come back and try to talk this tomorrow. But I think that it's something that is quiet um, mm -hmm. and so important. And I think that it's something that we don't really talk about because you're supposed to just like love every moment of it. And I do. It's great. But I think also it's just being like, sometimes you just got to slog it out, figure it out, make it happen. And I think that that's something that I've definitely cultivated, you know, especially looking backwards. So many of my jobs were like fun and, and like, this is fun, yeah. but it's way hard too. And I think that that's um, something that I've, I've cultivated over the past few years. That's great. I mean, that's something huge to be proud of because like you said, I mean, there's some days where you're just so heads deep, probably in the operations aspect, and it's not sexy at all. And you're just like, okay, what am I doing? But you take a step back, you go for a run and you come back to the business. You're always excited. Like taking that break, I've noticed, and I'm someone that I'm still learning to take a step back and not just 
push myself all the time, but you always come with a clearer mind and more excited about whatever problem you're approaching. So for you to maintain that over the years while building this business to a bigger scale is a huge accomplishment. So I appreciate you sharing that. And another question I have is your boyfriend has been with you with this company, you know, now as a co-founder from the early days, how is it working with your partner and from a personal side and professional side? I'd love to hear the backstory on that. It's like a superpower, basically. I mean, like, look, it's taken over our relationship. It's all bite all the time. <laughs> but it's so awesome to build a company with the person that you already know and that you live with and that you vacation with. We're able to like bounce things off. And I think that's why it's like when you talk about the stamina and these types, it all is woven together where you're trying to build something from nothing, right? Or build something from. And so I think being able to kind of work together as a team and to see each other in a whole different way as a coworker way, it's intense, but it's super helpful. It would be really interesting to me because I've never known anything different. I'm like, but how, how do people have a founder that they don't live with? Like what happens when you have an idea at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night? Like, how do you tell them? Like, what do you do? Text them? I'm like, no, I just walk into their room and I'm like, Asher, you don't understand. We got to do that. You know? And so I think it's fun. It has its own unique challenges, but for the most part, I, it's, it's a good time. Good sounding board to have. And it seems like you guys, at least when you started the company had very different roles, right? Is yeah. that still how it is? I think yeah. he heads up, what is it? Design and the tech and you're the operations. We have a very divide and conquer type mentality because we would be stepping all over each other's toes if we didn't. We both have very strong personalities and like the buck stops with me. He appreciates that and is totally aware of that. But when it comes down to our day-to-day responsibilities, he's very much designing and everything. And he has, I mean, he has amazing taste. It's, it's way better than mine. You know, like I definitely have a different, I'm not so into aesthetics all the time. Um, so he's, <laughs> I fully trust him with that. And so it's helpful. I find when we are on projects together, it's the headbutting a little yeah. bit because it's a bit, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, now I got to be like, no, we're going to be doing this way. But typically it's just divide and conquer and then like run and do it that way. Yeah. We've heard that a lot in terms of just like what makes a successful partnership. If you are working with, whether it's a close friend, family, boyfriend, fiance, husband, is if you can delineate roles and you guys just are the heads of that and you can make the decisions and not cross over each other too often, it seems to be the recipe. So it's super helpful to hear. So on a closing question, we love to ask all of our guests is wealth means so much more than money. And everybody has their own definition of wealth at this stage in your life. What does wealth mean to you? Wealth to me is being able to spend your time the way that you would like to. I think that no matter all of the money in the world, the whole reason people want money is so they can do what they want. Right. And so I think if you're able, whether you have a lot of money or not to spend your time doing something that you love and that you're interested in, Hmm. that's wealth. And so I think for me, I feel very wealthy. I get to do something that I love every day. It's not easy, but I love it. And I think that although there are things as a founder, like you don't get to go to all your friends' birthday parties and like do these things that you want to as like socially as much, being able to work on interesting problems with really smart people that is making the world better, I think is just so incredibly fun and rewarding. So I feel very wealthy. You definitely are. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today. I had so much fun meeting you and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. So thank you. Thanks, Edmund. This was so fun.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.